The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Our message for today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. The title of the sermon is, Why We Are to Rejoice. When was the last time you felt so filled with joy that you thought you would explode if you didn't verbally and physically express it? Have you ever seen someone react when they found out they won something just spectacular and they couldn't contain themselves? What about the ultimate 49er fan when they saw Dwight Clark make the great catch that won the game against the Dallas Cowboys? I can remember guys getting so excited about that they could hardly stand it. And so what about us? What about are we supposed to rejoice and be glad and exult and so forth? Well, when you look at the person of Jesus, you can see in him that he responded. He had both the emotional state of, of joy, but he also had the emotional reaction. He expressed exultation at times. He experienced a full range of emotional reactions. When he saw religion being commercialized, he got angry, like when he drove the money changers out of the temple. When he anticipated the cross, he experienced agony. In this context that we are looking at in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, let me read this to you and listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain the inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the approved part of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, he's likening their faith being tested by the trials they're going through with the testing of faith, which purified the gold by putting it over heat. When it became liquefied, they would remove all the impurities and let it harden again. And he says, that's the way the trials are for you. It purifies your faith. And though you have not seen him, he goes on, he says, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice. And what that means literally is, though you do not see him now, but you're believing in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's pretty expansive, isn't it? You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, the reason he says this is the soul is that part of man. If you remember when God created Adam, it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. The soul is that part of man in which he experiences the deep, deep uh, emotions and emotional responses to life. And so he says they experience this deep, deep joy because their soul They had become a living soul when God created them, and the soul is that part of man that allows him to experience the depth of emotion regarding the things of life. And he says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but you are believing in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So here, the believer is able to experience these deep, profound 
emotions about Jesus Christ, even though they can't see him. They can't see him, but they believe in him. They're believing in him. They're trusting in him, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So the the soul is being exercised. He's feeling these deep and profound expressions of joy because he has the soul that was a part of his inheritance in the new birth. When was the last time that you felt like that? Should believers ever feel and react in that way? Do you think Jesus ever did? Well, in Matthew 11, it talks about the emotional state of Jesus. And in Luke 10, 21, it talks about the emotional reaction of Jesus. Jesus experienced a full range of emotional reactions. As I said before, he responded in anger to when religion was being commercialized. As he anticipated the cross and the suffering that he was going to experience on it, he felt agony. And that's how it's expressed. He felt deep and profound agony in Luke 22 and Hebrews chapter 5. But here in this context, it's talking about joy. Joy is the deep expression. We are told that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the three word groups that are used here, the first one is the physical comfort and well-being as the basis of joy. That's the condition in which we experience joy. Number two, the subjective feeling of joy. That's the emotion itself. And then finally, this word that's used here in First Peter chapter 1, it's the outward demonstration of joy or the exaltation that is demonstrating the joy that has been poured into our soul. In Jude 24, it tells us that Jesus, when he presents us to the Father, is going to do it with great joy, with exaltation. He's going to experience deep and profound joy, and he's going to express it. In Luke 147, it talks the same thing about Mary being chosen as the mother of the Messiah. And then in Acts 16.34, it tells us about the joy of the Philippian jailer. If you remember, he asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And when they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then his entire family believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and they were baptized and they were saved. And he expresses the deep and profound joy that he feels because of that. In Acts 2.46, it's a characteristic of an infant church in Jerusalem. They were characterized by joy and the expression of joy. The only normal and proper response under certain circumstances is exaltation. And that's exactly what's going on here. And one such circumstance is implied here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. What should make you break out and praise the Father and fill you with so much joy that you would explode if you didn't express it? In those moments when the Holy Spirit makes truths concerning the new birth a vivid reality to our renewed minds, those moments of perception, understanding, appreciation of what's being born again actually means right now and for eternity, they, they experience deep and profound joy. What is it about being born again that should fill my heart with overwhelming joy and my mouth with praise for my Heavenly Father who begot me? What should I know about this new birth relationship from God that would give me that kind of joy? Well, notice this. First of all, what's new about the new birth? Well, we're told that when we are born again, we receive a new nature. That's 1 John 3, 9. We experience the, of receiving the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. It also tells us in 1 John 5, 11, and 12 that we receive a new life eternal life. And then in Romans 12, verse 2, it tells us we receive a mind that begins to be renewed. So Peter mentions three truths about regeneration that help us appreciate this work for what it really is. And this is what he says in verse 3. He says, you were born again because of the Father's incomparable mercy. Now, mercy is when God treats us based upon what we need, not what we deserve. 
and what we receive from him in the new birth is according to his great mercy. And the meaning of mercy is that, that God cares so much about us that he treats us based on our need, not based on what we actually deserve. Paul emphasized the fact that mercy was needed because of man's inability to satisfy the demands of God's righteous law. Whereas Peter, he talked about our need of mercy because we need that we needed because of man's misery in the midst of suffering. Because of the Father's love for us, when we were in misery, he delivered us through regeneration. How did regeneration or the new birth change our situation? And so Peter now mentions two results of being born again. The believer is born again in two particular realities. He is born again unto hope, which is also described as the earnest expectation that God will fulfill his promises to us about the future. And then he also says we are born again to an inheritance. It refers to the final consummation of this life, what we're going to receive. So your whole life as a believer from beginning to end is purposed and determined in the one act of God causing you to be born again. You were born again to a living hope. That is, this hope that you now have, this earnest expectation that God, all that he's promised you, he's going to fulfill. Before being born again, in Ephesians 2.12, it talks about our present condition, and we were dead. And not only we were dead, but the future prospect was we were without hope. But through Christ's work, God offered hope. In fact, he says this in First Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Let me read these to you. He says, who through him are believers in God, that is, we are, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. This is what he's called us to do. We now have the capacity to love. And so he says, fervently love one another from the heart because I've equipped you to do that. This is why he has made us the way we are so that we can experience this very thing. Now, we were born again to an inheritance, we're told, in verses 4 and 5. When you became a child of God, you immediately became heir of an incredible inheritance. Remember that situation? Here we have an inheritance in heaven. What is our inheritance like? Well, he uses three negatives to describe it, and then one positive. And here are the negatives. He says, it is not perishable. It is imperishable, not subject to decay. Long in duration, we're going to receive resurrection bodies that we'll live in for all eternity. It's imperishable. Secondly, it's undefiled, incapable of pollution, not subject to moral decay. And then third, it will not fade away. It will never diminish. It will never fade away. It's not like a car that the paint begins to oxidize and it's no longer beautiful. It's ugly. Wouldn't it be terrible to be stuck with something for eternity that was getting uglier all the time? And then he says, and it's reserved to keep under guard from outside attack to guarantee against loss or defect. Our inheritance is under the tightest security. He uses a present passive participle, which describes this as already being in heaven, this inheritance. What he means by that is we are predestined for this inheritance, and it will never diminish, having ever been and thus ever continuing to be safeguarded by the heavens for you. But what about the heirs? He's protecting our inheritance, but what about protecting us? Well, he's done the same thing for us. The heirs are protected. We are garrisoned about, we're told in Philippians 4, 7. That means he's continually doing this, present tense, continuous action. By the power of God, he's the immediate agency. The power of God works as a posted sentinel or guard which protects the believer from outside attacks. And it's through faith. Intermediate agency is it's our faith in Christ. 
It is faith that brings salvation, that opens the way for God's power to work, for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Our future salvation is the goal of this guarding. So what should I do with this truth? Well, I think the most important thing is you should remember it. It's something that we should commit to our memories and we should rejoice in it continually. Well, how do we do that? I had a teacher named Charles Feinberg, Charles Lee Feinberg. I still remember this. He said to us one day, he said, gentlemen, your forgetteries will always work better than your memories. So you should work on remembering the things that you should remember. For some of us, the new birth is old hat. We've lost all the excitement. But the fact is, this is a glorious truth. And we are, it's something we are to remember. Now, the way we remember it is, we are told in Scripture very clearly, the way we are to remember this is through the Lord's table. We come to the Lord's table in order to remember him and remember this salvation that he has provided for us. And so every time we come to the Lord's table and we think about the bread and the cup, we're, we're thinking about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, which purchased this salvation for us, and it is being protected, and it's being cared for by the Father. He is guarding everything that we have, everything that we're going to have in the future. And so we rejoice in this new birth because God has given us a a new birth which is to last for all eternity. So that's what I should do about this truth. I should remember it. And I should think about it when I come to the Lord's table, that this is why we have the Lord's table. It's so that we would remember the most important thing, that we have received this new birth from Christ. Do you know that the greatest blessing in all of life as a believer that you have, when you sense the presence of Jesus Christ, you are experiencing the most wonderful blessing in all of life. That's why Peter wrote, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you're not seeing him now, but believing in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, that is incredible statement. It's saying that even though we're not seeing him with our eyes, because we are believing him, we're believing the testimony about him, we are rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It is faith that gives us this very experience because he's caused us to be born again. And we now have this ability to remember this glorious truth of having a Savior who has caused us to be born again. And for all eternity, we're going to experience the benefits of this glorious work of Christ. So we should never forget it. Remind yourself and remind one another as we come to the Lord's table, this is what we do this so that we will remember. We want to remember him. We want to remember everything that he's done for us, everything he's doing for us, everything he's going to do for us. And so we are grateful for this new birth, and we are grateful to the point that we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory as you are receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, what that's talking about is that God, in saving us, restored our souls so that we could feel deeply the things that are worth feeling deeply about. And so we're going to be completely blessed by this truth that that we have been born again, and that our future is with Jesus Christ. And every time we experience his manifest presence with us, we can rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So don't take the Lord's table lightly. It is a time in which you're supposed to remember all that Christ has done for you and how he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestinated us to adoption as sons. Those are blessings, rich, rich blessings that tell us how much he has loved us and how much he has manifested that love towards us in the new birth and in all the consequences of that. So let's remember to remember. Let's remind each other to remember. You are blessed. We are born again. 
and we come before the God that we are now alive to, who is going to know us from all eternity. We're going to be in his presence. Praise God. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.